Welcome to episode 114 of the Property Nomads podcast. And today we are talking about how to monetize podcasts. And I'm delighted to be joined by Robin Pearson, who hosts the History of Byzantium podcast. If you like your history, go and check it out because it's fantastic. And we're just going to have a, a general chat about monetizing podcasts. We're going to touch a bit about Istanbul and other various bits and pieces as well. Uh, Robin, thank you very much for your time. Hey, thank you for having me. I have to say, as a massive fan of the History of Byzantium podcast, it's uh, really good to be able to, you know, get get to have this conversation with you. I'm really looking forward to it. Before, we'll start at the beginning, because uh, it seems like the most sensible place to start. What got you into the idea of podcasting in the first place? I realized uh, in retrospect that I'd been a podcast fan all my life. They just hadn't invented them yet, um, which I think hopefully some of your listeners will relate to in that my parents are both big into the radio. And when I was a kid, they would give me um, cassettes of, you know, BBC radio comedies, um, which I loved and I would listen to before I fell asleep. And so when podcasts came out around, you know, 2007, I probably like started listening to them. I was like, Oh yeah. Like I used to listen to audio just on its own all the time before TV sucked me in. Um, and yeah, I think I, when I really got into them was uh, at the Edinburgh Festival. I was working for my dad, who was an actor, and uh, handing out flyers. So I was standing in the street for hours on end. And so I just discovered podcasts. So I was just downloading them uh, one after the other after the other just to fill the time um, because I was so bored. And after about a year of that, I thought, hmm. Like, th this is something I'm so into, maybe I could do a podcast. And um, the big thing at the time for me was Lost, the TV show about people trapped on an island. And so I started podcasting about that, and that kind of expanded into other TV shows. And, um, yeah, I spent about four years just um, being a, a podcasting TV critic for fun. And... Uh, yeah, that's sort of how I got into it. And uh, I still listen to, I don't know, 20, 30 shows a week. Uh, <laughs> um, whenever I'm, you know, walking, when I'm at the gym, when I'm going around the house, when, you know, whenever I have a spare moment, I'm just sticking podcasts on. So, yeah, it's a big part of my life. That's cool. So I've been doing it for us. So I've been listening to them for, you know, well over, well over 10 years. You must have said, from someone that's been listening to them for such a long time, have you seen them? evolve in any way apart from the fact there's you know many more out nowadays is the audio quality improved or has it always been pretty much you listen to it and, and then that's it no it's definitely changed the, the early ones um as you as you've hinted at had uh, a lot of variable quality both in terms of the audio and in terms of what people were doing um particularly in the last three or four years um the money people have got involved and so a lot of you know, uh, more professionalism has come in, um, not just in terms of production, but obviously more and more celebrities are having their own podcasts, sports people, TV people have realized you can make money from it. So the, the market has been flooded. And of course you then get people who experiment with the format and write their own, you know, mystery shows or soap operas in podcast form. So yeah, it's, uh, it's grown and expanded and will continue to do so for a while. 
I completely agree with that. I think you know, having done you know at the time of recording the show for one and a half years, you know, and the amount of again, as you say, celebrities that are coming out of the woodwork, you know, they can see money signs in their eyes and so forth, and it's a uh, you know, but it's another good way to get fantastic content out uh, as as well, which is good. History. So you host the History of Byzantium podcast. What got you into, what gave you the idea to go down that route of running that show in the first place? So one of the podcasts I found early on that I really loved is uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Um, which is now a huge show. And um, I, you know, I'd always liked history. Um, I wouldn't say it was one of my biggest hobbies, but I'd always been interested in it. I liked it at school. And that led me to look for other history podcasts. And I found the history of Rome and the Romans have always been in my life and in popular culture and uh, you know, Ben-Hur and Spartacus and, Things So, you know, I was always interested uh, in a general sense. I did read, uh, I did a bit of history at university um, and I read a bit more then. Um, and so, you know, I, I considered myself into the Romans, but when I heard them in podcast form, and this is Mike Duncan's podcast, The History of Rome, suddenly it all came to life for me in a, in a big way. And um, some of your listeners may maybe relate to that. You know, I think we all pick up a bit of history. We all visit a castle now and again, we see something on TV. The podcast allowed all these strands, these little bits, bit of Julius Caesar here, a bit of Constantine there. It strung them all together for me. And I had, you know, I had read Roman history books, but I kind of feel with some books you've forgotten, you've forgotten by the end of it, what you were learning at the beginning, because it's 500 pages and it's a lot to take in. And the podcast is just a format where, you know, you get this half hour installment and at the beginning and the end, you can be reminded, you know, this is where we were last time and this is where we're going today. And that thing I told you 20 episodes ago, that's now paying off in this interesting way. And it really fired me up about the Roman story. And um, by the end of uh, Mike's run with the podcast, he ended it in uh, the fifth century AD when places like Britain and France and Spain and Italy start to sort of split off from the Roman empire and begin their journeys to becoming what they are now. Um, he stopped the podcast and, and I wrote to him and said, no, you've got to carry on, you know, into the medieval period when the Roman empire continues in the Eastern Mediterranean. And he, he was happy doing his own thing and changing uh, his, uh, topic of history. And so I thought, hmm, like I've been doing these TV podcasts for four years. Um, they haven't led to a big following. This history podcast clearly has a big following and I'm really into it and I want it to continue. Is there any way that's something that I could do? And uh, yeah, I, I took the plunge and, and set up the podcast and started and waited to see if anyone would say, this is a terrible go away or oh, I like what you're doing. So that was 2012. And here we are eight years later, I'm still doing it. That's awesome. I love it. I mean, that's absolutely fantastic. It's, it's taken something that you're obviously passionate about and inspired by and, and replicating it and, you know, obviously moving the story on because it, you know, obviously goes from one to another. And with the history of Rome, I know during lockdown, 
Um, I, I listen to multiple podcasts as well, but a lot of them are normally in business, a bit of football as well. Uh, but I do like my history. So I remember coming across, because I love listening to uh, Revolutions by Mike Duncan as well. And I hadn't realised he'd done the history of Rome. So I binged through that and that was, I mean, his style is fantastic. Um, from completing that, then, you know, following the course of history, it seemed natural to move on to history of Byzantium and, you know, started listening to that from, from the start as well. Uh, do you think with the style that Mike has, did you try and replicate that winning formula as such straight away? Or did you have your, did that take time to adapt to that? Because that seemed to be quite a good winning formula there for the history of Rome. Yeah, he does a great job. So for your listeners who haven't heard, you know, he's, he's keeping it simple, uh, but playing it straight. Um, You know, it's, it's not quite, um, it's a little bit more lighthearted, let's say, than what the BBC might produce. It's got a a lightness of touch, but it it doesn't go much further than that. It's not like making jokes about Caesar salads or I don't know. <laughs> so it's not it's not trivializing things. So if you're into history, you get you get what you're looking for. But at the same time, he keeps it relatable um, and kind of to the point and. He does. He just had a. He just has a great skill of reminding you of what's important and making things interesting without going too in depth and losing you. So yeah, I was really into that, and I was definitely trying to replicate that style. And I wanted people to exactly do what you did, which is find they love the history of Rome and go, I want it to continue. And oh look, here's a con- here's a continuation, and it's of a good enough quality to not you know turn me off. Um, and then over time, I found I wanted to experiment and um, do things a bit differently. Mike was, you know, trying to get through the narrative of Roman history, which obviously lasts for centuries. So he kind of had to stay on point and keep things purely about what happened um, politically and militarily and then get to the end before he his life needed to move on. Whereas I was happy for it to become my full-time job. So I was able to take time to go down tangents and look at social and economic and um, other cultural developments and take more time over it. So as that happened, my style evolved and, and has changed a bit over over eight years. Oh, that leads us in nicely to talking about how to monetize a podcast because you've just mentioned about making it your full-time job. And so for some people that are going to be listening to this, some people might already have podcasts, some people might be thinking about starting podcasts. Again, you've just alluded that you've made it your full-time job. So how have you gone about effectively monetizing the History of Byzantium podcast? So it's worth saying that um, when I started the podcast, I knew that I was going to have to um, ask listeners to contribute directly because the advertising market hadn't developed the way it has now. So now in 2020, you can think about advertising in a way that I couldn't in 2012. So I'll tell you how I went about it and then we'll, we'll reach today where you might have more options. Um, so I was podcasting about TV, which um, is quite a, a good 
subject for a podcast because someone else is creating the content and then you're just commenting on it and it has a natural rhythm. Um, you know, you want to get, you want to comment on it a day or two after it's aired. History is obviously completely different because I'm doing all the research. So if you want to do a history podcast, you need a lot of free time or you need to be aiming to make it your job or part of your job. Um, and I was very lucky at the time that I, I worked for my father, who was an actor, and he was starting to wind down what he was doing. So I suddenly had free time, but I also had this part-time job I didn't want to leave. So I was able to dedicate the time to the podcast, and I gave myself a goal of doing it free for a year and then having a sale, like a fundraising sale, saying, you know, hopefully I've built something of an audience over this year. Please can you now throw me a, a fiver or in this case, you know, in the case of most people, $5 to keep me going. Um, so I put an episode of the podcast up for sale. And the idea in my head was that, um, you know, I would have happily paid for more of the history of Rome and I needed people to take it seriously. You know, a lot of podcasts will just say, Hey, you know, if you want to donate to what we're doing, please do. And I couldn't really, leave people that choice because I was putting a year of my life into it and then saying, you know, I need, I need to be paid for the next year. So if I say, can you donate if you feel like it, lots of people would have said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you in, in another year's time when I've remembered to, you know, support you or I've enjoyed it enough to feel like I want to give you money. So I had to have some kind of compulsion. So I had to put an episode behind a paywall and, you know, my argument was, well, it's one episode. So those who really love the show will feel compelled and say, hey, you know, take, take five pounds as a reward for your year's work. It's not a lot to ask. And, you know, those who, who aren't going to give you money anyway, it's like, well, what do you care? Wait two weeks and the next episode will be out. Um, so that was the plan. And it worked well enough, um, as, you, uh, as you may know from other businesses or pursuits, generally, if you're going on, on what's now known as the freemium model, where you're largely all your content is free and then occasionally you charge, you get about 10% of people will, will actually give you money. And the people who will give you more than you ask for, or, you know, be willing to give you more than you ask for is even less than 10%. But if you've got a big enough audience taking the free stuff, you can survive on that model. So, uh, the next time I did a sale about a year later, I asked for a little more. I always left it open. So if you wanted to give more than $5, you could. Um, and then eventually I started creating, uh, five or six bonus episodes a year that weren't part of the narrative. Um, so it wasn't sort of five or six regular episodes behind a paywall. It was sort of bonus stuff that maybe only hardcore fans would be interested in. Um, so that's how I survived. And, uh, you know, I had to create the bonus ones to really make a full-time living. Um, just selling one every year or 18 months wasn't going to be enough. Uh, shall I go on to how monetization has developed over time? Well, absolutely. This, this is fantastic. Yeah, please, please do. Okay. So this is my, this is obviously our, uh, English guilt at talking for too long and monopolizing <laughs> the room. If I was American, I'd still be going anyway, just alienated. 80% of my audience. But uh, yeah, so uh, over time, uh, at the advertising market has, has picked up. Um, I don't know if 
this is widespread news now, but um, Spotify have just offered Joe Rogan, um, presumably uh, many tens of millions of dollars to acquire the rights to his podcast, um, which is a huge popular podcast. So by the time you are hearing this, the podcast market has moved on into the mainstream in terms of advertising. Um, and so there are various ways you can do that. You can deal with companies um, uh, directly. Um, Audible.com, the audiobook people are the most um, prevalent um, where you you advertise their services. And if enough people sign up on your code, um, then you'll get uh, a kickback, as it were. You'll get a cut. But um, eventually the model developed to the point where companies will stream adverts. So if you're a regular podcast listener, you'll know this. You start the episode and it's adverts, maybe one, maybe two. The podcast often stops in the middle and adverts play and then more adverts play at the end. And so that is all now arranged by companies. Um, I'm with a company called Acast who will stitch those adverts in at the beginning of every episode. So even episodes I recorded eight years ago, if you try to listen now, you'll get adverts from your home market. So we'll hear stuff from the UK, but other listeners are hearing things from the States or wherever they are. And that now um, pays pretty well. Um, you know, I, I remember asking someone two, three years ago who does a similar history podcast. I said, how much are you making from Acast? And they said about 8,000 pounds a year. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, way more than I thought podcasts would be making. And um, he probably has a similar audience to me. I have about 50,000 listeners probably in uh, podcasting is all done by sort of um, immediacy in terms of advertising. So they, they want to know how many people listen in the first three days, maybe the first week. And then people, obviously there are more listeners who then listen at their own pace, but they don't sort of count for advertising purposes. Um, and so those numbers go up, you know, uh, a lot of popular podcasts have half a million listeners and even more. And so you can imagine how much they're making from advertising every year now. Um, and if you are asked to do a, uh, your own read of an advert, so you might say, you know, are you interested in property? Property Nomads podcast is, you know, is the place to go. You, you will obviously be paid more for your time for reading those ads. Um, and yeah, so, you know, that's how I've monetized things. I, I now also run history tours, which we'll talk about later. Um, and so between direct support from listeners and then advertising, playing on the podcast and then doing tours, I'm now able to, you know, make a full-time living. And, and I live in London, which I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast knows is not cheap. So uh, I must be surviving just about. <laughs> Sounds like you're doing a good job to me, Robin. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of content to go through now, and that, that's superb. Thank you for, for sharing that. It's a really, if I summarize that in, in a nutshell, it's nurture your audience, keep trying to build it any way you can, and don't be afraid to effectively ask for ask for uh, funds to to help you going. So if you've got a, I think it was Tim Ferriss said a while ago when he's talking about podcast numbers. I'm going to paraphrase this really badly, but he he was talking about numbers and he was saying, well, 
it doesn't really matter if you've got 5 million downloads, 100 million downloads or whatever. If you then go and pitch a product or a service and no one buys it, what's the point? He said, if you've got 100 dedicated listeners and you only get 100 people every episode, but every time you promote something, you know they're going to buy it, you're hardcore fans. He said, really, what's more valuable? Uh, you know, I think that's an interesting way of, of putting it. Uh, but I think he's had over 200 million downloads of his, you know, maybe even more than that over his lifetime. I, I thought that was an interesting spin. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's that idea of, is it like having a thousand fans or whatever is enough for you to to make a living from? Um, uh, what I would say is maybe um, some of your listeners will have a quite different podcast in mind or, or already running that they're imagining monetizing. And certainly the model I um, use is probably quite specific in that the product I'm selling is the podcast itself, um, you know, is saying you like hearing the Roman story. You don't want to miss an episode. So buy the next episode, if you're running a podcast like property nomads offering advice and, um, information, it may be more difficult to directly sell an episode, but you may have other things that you can offer that people will be interested in. And as you, as you and Tim Ferriss maybe is saying, sometimes people will buy because they like you, you know, it may own, it may, the thing you're offering may not be f as valuable to them as, um, it would be on the open marketplace, but they'll buy it from you or they'll buy it to support you because it offers them some value. So I think there's, there's lots of uh, room to monetize a podcast on, on that basis. I would, I'd completely agree. It's, um, you know, one thing um, my business partner and I've started doing is we've um, been lucky enough to do quite a bit of traveling over the years. So we've started writing our sort of memoirs as such and that's been an interesting experience because the minute you start typing and you just realize how much two things that we've realized is number one how much stuff happened that we either completely forgot about or we didn't tell anyone for various reasons and secondly is once you get in the flow of writing it's just amazing what can keep coming into your head it's like, oh, that happened. Well, you know, this, oh, yeah, then that happened in this country. And then you start writing about that. So we might go down the Patreon route on that of, you know, opening up on, well, actually, you know, if you want to, I don't know, release a chapter a week or something like that, because we were out on the road for nearly a year. So, we, you know, we might trial that. And as you say, that that will probably be based on people liking us for who we are um, more than anything else. Well, maybe it's worth giving that a go. Hmm. I'm thinking to myself, anyway, I can hear the clogs turning in my head. So you just touched upon there, um, monetizing the podcast, and you mentioned tours. We'll get onto that in a bit. But in terms of how you prepare for a history podcast, and you've alluded to this already. So if we were to prepare for an episode of the Property Nomads podcast, depends on what we're doing, who we're doing, uh, sorry, who we're uh, interviewing, sorry, we might put a bit of time into it uh, and then sort of go with the flow during the show. I would imagine from a history point of view, it's a bit different. And as you've, 
you know, a lot of reading, a lot of studying. How do you know what's a good source of information? Talk us through that process of how you would prepare for a, um, an episode of the history of Byzantium. Yeah, so in a way, I'm lucky. Um, if I was studying, you know, the Second World War or even the French Revolution, the the number of sources that have survived would be um, potentially overwhelming. With with Roman history, there's usually only uh, a couple of actual written histories from the time to look at. And there are, of course, um, you know, archaeology and coins and other bits of evidence that um, are discussed. But usually it's a, it's a manageable amount. Um, and so you, you start with modern history books and you've, you know, you go towards those who are the, the best written and the, um, the easiest to read those who, who write well or research well or explain things well, because that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be explaining what happened and why we think we know what happened. And you then go down the rabbit hole of their sources. So who do they say they read in order to find this out? And who do they disagree with? And so, yeah, you end up reading basically people in the last 50 years who've, who've analyzed these same sources and these same bits of information and have come to different conclusions. And then you are coming to your own conclusion and trying to balance what you've learned and then turn it into a script that's both uh, entertaining but as accurate as possible. And so generally that is just straightforward. You know, in this year this happened and in this year this happened. And you try always to – well, I try to always remember what it was like to be me before I knew this. So I kind of do the podcast as if I'm explaining to myself what I've just learned. And I think that works quite well because I was a huge History of Rome fan. And so when I started, it was like, right, I know everything I know having just listened to the History of Rome. What do I now tell myself having done my first bit of research on Byzantine history? And I explained it. And I think that keeps Mike's style of you're, you're assuming people have a basic um, bit of knowledge and you're kind of relying on them to remember things and you think well if they don't remember it they can go back and listen i'm not going to repeat myself too much but you do have to repeat yourself enough to remind them of important things so you just kind of have to go over a script trying to work out if it sounds good to you and that's your judgment is 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 you yourself and so yeah i, I write a script it's you try to make it about half an hour in length and then you read it and and record it and unlike an interview now you have to remove all ums and ahs and coughs and mistakes because people don't have much tolerance for that when they know you're reading a script so yeah that's pretty much how it works if you have to uh, i'm aware that well i would guess that every episode preparation is going to be different for one another but if you had to put an average time frame on how long it would take to do that process how long do you think it would take you can probably do a, a narrative episode in about five days um, because usually there isn't too much contradictory evidence uh, to stop you from kind of summarizing it relatively quickly. So, you know, when I'm, when I'm in a good place, I can do an episode every week on the narrative. As soon as you have to research something in more detail, 
Um, so if you're talking about how was the economy in this period, like that's two weeks minimum. And when it becomes more complicated, it can take three weeks, four weeks. Um, and so you, we've just covered the crusades. I was reading for about four or five weeks and then I suddenly was able to produce a whole string of episodes in a row. Um, so yeah, it's, it's ever variable. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I'm always balancing it because people would love the podcast to be every week, but the more I read, the better the podcast is. So you, you know, when I've been gone for more than a week, I always have a slight voice in the back of my head saying, you know, people want an episode now. So you're always, always balancing between how much research you can really do and, and when you need to keep the episodes coming. And then moving on to the fan base that you have, you've got a great website, you have some social medias. How do you find the time to manage all of that? And do you get a lot of feedback from people on social media, both with good points and, and things to improve on for the show? It's an interesting one. And um, perhaps the perhaps history is different to other podcasts, I'm not sure, but my audience is very reflective of me. Um, when we got uh, adverts, when I first joined Acast and adverts came on the podcast, they asked me to get the listeners to fill in a survey as they do so that they can sell your show to advertisers. And they said, here's the statistics on your audience when it came back. And it was like 95% male and kind of 70% within 10 or 12 years of my age. And um, a lot of people who've, who've done degrees or even more than one degree at university, which surprised me. So most of my listeners are far more intelligent than I am. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> so in that sense, the feedback I get uh, on the podcast is quite reflective of me, as in I don't get a hundred tweets with banter and jokes and, uh, I don't know, kind of frivolous history commentary, what I tend to get is uh, an email every day from someone going, oh, I really like the podcast and I want to ask you about this, or I thought about this, or I'm, this is my background. Um, so it's, you get very thoughtful, interesting responses. A lot of people now ask me for help. I think um, the podcast has been around long enough that students of history are now coming to me saying, do you know where I can find sources and information um which i'm happy to help with so yeah um i don't do a huge amount on social media i just post the episodes and um if someone sends me a meme i will <laughs> if it's a you know there aren't many byzantine memes so I'm always happy <laughs> to retweet them uh yeah so i don't spend a huge amount of time on it and i i, I don't really advertise the podcast because to be interested in byzantine history is you know, you will seek it out. It's, uh, it's no good me standing on the street going, would you like a bit of Byzantine history? People will not understand the sentence. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing to myself. I have to go and find some Byzantine memes now after this, I think. Uh, so that's my evening activity. So it, that's, that's interesting you say that. And I think that's pretty cool as well. I was thinking also there that I probably fit into that exact demographic you said as well, 31, got a degree at university, although it's a business degree. Um, so I've I, I seen that fits in with the general demographic there. So 
That's um, yeah, good times. In terms of Istanbul, uh, we'll get onto that in a second. I've been a Liverpool fan. I've never been to Istanbul, but it's got a special, special memory uh, there. Uh, you mentioned about tours that you do as well, which, again, it, to people listening, that they might think, well, that is absolutely brilliant. That's completely out of the box. How does a history tour work and how have you found the processes of doing the first couple that you've done with members of your audience? It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, I went to Istanbul in 2016 and thanks to people kind of introducing themselves, I, I got introduced to a guy um, called David Hendricks who runs a website called the Byzantine Legacy. And he lives, he's an American who lives in Istanbul and he's kind of cataloging all the Byzantine sites there. And he was incredibly helpful and he showed me around and he introduced me to um, my Turkish tour guide who's called Sheriff Yannan. And he um, used to be um, head of the tourist, um, the tour guides network in Istanbul. So he's very well connected and he's a lovely guy. And so he said, you know, if you can find the listeners, I will run the tours for you. So it was, you know, it's, it's who you know and who you meet and so on. So he's very experienced at running these kind of tours. And listeners had been uh, messaging me about running tours for a while. And I didn't know what the demand would be like, but the demand was high. And um, uh, as people who run tours may know that I didn't sort of think about, people will bring their partners. So you kind of only need 10 people who are interested to have 20 people on a tour sometimes. So um, the tours very quickly filled up and uh, yeah, my uh, sheriff did, does all the work of organizing their stay in a hotel in the center of Istanbul. And we're quite lucky that um, we're kind of exploring one city so we can do a lot of walking. We're not on a coach for seven hours. And of course the people who came were, uh, very much like me, uh, <laughs> a lot of them. Um, I definitely met, uh, you know, men from America or Australia or wherever, you know, who felt like, you know, we'd been at school together or whatever. We had so much in common and people were generally very easygoing and very easy to deal with and, and had a good time. And, um, you know, for someone uh, who who has learned all this information, the chance to show off in front of a, a group of people and show them buildings and, and places that I'd loved exploring and telling them what I know is a, is a huge thrill and a privilege. So the tours have been great. And I mean, I'm very lucky because obviously it's Sheriff's Travel Company and I am paid as sort of his co-tour leader, but I don't have to do any of the admin of organizing the tour. So it's, if you can get in that situation, you are very lucky, which I am. That's great. I uh, love the point that you mentioned there about people bringing their partners along. Uh, until you said that, that would have completely slipped my mind as, as well. Just going back to the audience very briefly, Robin, and again, there's no such thing as a stupid question, but I'll, I'll, I'll apologise in advance just in case. Do you find it, um, not weird, but do you find it, oh yeah, okay, do you find it weird that people 
can get that addicted to sort of listening to a history episode, even though they know what the outcome is. I mean, I'm assuming that most people that listen to the history of Byzantium already know what happens at the end, or do you find that that's not the case? I mean, no, it's definitely not a stupid question. Um, I mean, I think people are interested. I think, um, I think a lot of history um, podcasts are covering a period that, that the listener already knows. You know, you First World War, Second World War, American Civil War type things are very popular already. So I think in a sense, people like to hear a story they already know and like again and find out more information about it. And I suppose that's what you're offering is the more. Um, and with history, of course, the stories you know and love may not actually be true, or they may be um, a garbled account of what we think really happened. Or you know, um, So there's that aspect to it of sort of finding out more and finding the truth. But I also think there is an aspect of it where it is like a TV show or a sports team. So like, you know, you listen to football podcasts. I do too. Um, sometimes you just want to hear something you enjoyed watching described by other people. You want to hear other people's reaction to it, or you want to hear an expert opinion on something you're enjoying. I mean, you're a Liverpool fan, so you must be loving this year hearing people talking about how great Liverpool are. You know what I mean? Even though you've already seen the game, you already know what happened. So I think there's a sense in which people think of the Roman empire as a sports team. And so they follow the ups and downs. They, they cheer when they win and they're sad when they lose in a, in a strange way. Um, and, and of course that's a bit like a TV show, you know, you watch game of Thrones or breaking bad or something and you, you, you have a you have an idea of where it's going. You're not entirely watching it to be surprised. You you want to see a happy ending in some cases, or a, a bad person get justice. So I think uh, history kind of ticks a lot of those boxes. Who do you support? Chelsea. Oh, that's, that's all right. That, that's fair. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I know. I was waiting for the bad reaction, but I mean, I I um I, I'm sort of an England football fan more than more than club, which makes me very unusual, which is because of my cricketing love as well. So I'm, I'm very pleased when, when England, England teams do well in the Champions League or whatever. So I, I have no hatred for Liverpool. I'm just happy you didn't say Man United, to be honest, Robin. That would have, uh, that would have, we would have had to have finished there and you know, everything. Um, but but uh, talking, of, talking of cricket, uh, slight off topic again is I could watch YouTube videos of Chris Gale hitting sixes all day long that guy is fantastic there you go well and in lockdown I'm watching a lot of sport on YouTube so uh, happy to watch anything <laughs> good times uh, moving on to Istanbul then uh, and again as I said before I'm just, you know, Liberal fan, happy memories of 2005, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I wasn't there. I didn't go to the game, but I watched it on TV and it was, you know, everyone was in tears at the end uh, one way or another. As a city, what is it like? Uh, but also, how how do you pronounce the Hagia Sophia? Because I'm acutely aware it's not actually pronounced like that, is it? Um, yeah, so this is the big um, Byzantine Cathedral Church. Um then mosque now museum in istanbul you've probably seen pictures of it um the 
Greeks who, who built it uh, would now call it Ahia Sophia. Um, in, in Turkey, it's just Ahia Sophia. Um, and yeah, we would read it Hagia Sophia. Um, yeah, it, it, the center, the old center of Istanbul, which was Byzantine Constantinople, is not that dissimilar to, um, you know, European cities like Rome or um, Paris or Brussels, you know, where they have their old town and there are old buildings mixed amongst the new ones. Um, it's very touristy there um, in the old town. There's um, shops and hotels everywhere. What's different from a European city is the minarets. Um, you know, the the Ottomans built oh, you know, a dozen different mosques that all look a bit like the Hagia Sophia. They all have a dome and minarets. And um, so it's it's sort of familiar but different. Um, Istanbul, like London, is a gigantic city. Unlike London, it sort of spreads itself around um, the waterways. So the old town is kind of on its own, and then you can travel to the modern areas, which look like, you know, any other modern city. And um, but they're sort of separated out. Um, the old town of Istanbul is still surrounded by the medieval walls, which are fantastic to explore. And there is a, there's a lack of health and safety in, uh, <laughs> in Turkey. So you can actually go and climb bits of the walls that you're not meant to, which is very much fun for us on the tour. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really fun. And you know, you hear the call to prayer and people disappear to mosques every now and again, but otherwise People in people there are thrilled to see tourists because Turkey's been hit by various problems since 9/11. So uh, people are super friendly and happy to see you, and uh, it's not as um, stark as as you might expect. When you were there, do you really get a sense that it is east versus west, or east sorry, east meets west? Did you get that sensation when you were there? Um, yeah, I mean. I, I would say uh, where are, where we are is very touristy. So there are a lot of women, even local women, just wearing what you would expect them to wear elsewhere. Um, but there are people fully covered as well. So you get a you get a sense of that. The further east you go into Turkey, the more um, religious observance there is. So um, it depends kind of where you're traveling in Turkey. Yeah, I think um, there are still a lot of people in Istanbul who are very secular and very kind of Western looking in their dress and behavior. And so you do get that sense of, of East and West meeting or, or kind of the the stricter parts of the Middle East meeting um, the liberal parts of Europe. You definitely sort of see that. But um there, there was no, there's been no hostility when I've been there. It's been very friendly uh, in both ways. And would you say that that's taken you by surprise or did you go over there with just a, a clean mind with no assumptions on how the people would be? No, I definitely went with some apprehension, but um, the, the biggest surprise to me because, because of my ignorance was going into mosques. So, one of the big draws of going to Istanbul is that Byzantine churches were converted into mosques. And so you can go and visit um, these medieval buildings that otherwise might have been knocked down. And so going into a mosque, I kind of thought 
it'll be a very strict, um, severe attitude, not only to, you know, Westerners coming in, but sort of coming in to look around, not to, to worship. And the complete opposite was the case, which, which did really surprise me. Um, the, we met several imams of the mosques who were super friendly and like, you know, one of them in particular, very casual, very like he was in jeans. He was like, Hey, you know, nobody comes to visit my mosque. This was great. And, you know, he was really happy to show us around. And then also you see kids, there were kids running around and playing. So it had this really lovely atmosphere of kind of, um, you know, being a serious place of worship, but also being like a place where families were meeting and gathering and friends were seeing each other. And, um, so that warmth and informality was a real surprise to me. And I think that's, that's that thing about travel broadening your mind. You actually go and experience something and you realize, all right, this isn't any different than a church would be in, in the West, but you're in your mind, you think, Oh, it must be really solemn and serious, but it wasn't at all. That's one of the beauties of traveling, as you've just said, is you're able to say broaden your horizons, broaden your experiences, and you know every day's a life. Every day's a school day, so there's always something new to learn. A couple of quick questions before we finish this off, uh, Robin. Uh, it's still on the theme of Byzantium, Istanbul. Have you by any chance watched the Rise of the Ottomans uh, series on Netflix? I've seen the first episode. I haven't seen more than that though. Fair. I was going to ask if you what what did you think if you had seen the whole lot? Uh, that'd be interesting to maybe follow that up uh, at another point, maybe. Um, yeah, I thought it was an inter- interesting series. Again, knowing what happens, and I don't know. I don't obviously don't know as much about the era as you do. So you know, again, it would be nice to get your feedback on that as and when you get round to uh, watching that, given uh, all the prep you're doing for the episodes at the moment. Well, how did you find it in terms of format? Because I thought it was interesting, the kind of combination of documentary and dramatization. I liked it. I um, I like how Netflix, and not just with this, I mean, I recently watched um, one about the, I forgot the names, about the Chicago Bulls as well um, on Netflix. I love the way that they mix and match a little bit Netflix. So, I mean, especially, especially with the Ottoman ones, they'll go to, a period where um, you know they're on the battlefield, and then you go to a couple of historians and they're talking about different things. So the way that they combine that, I found that I found that really interesting. And uh, again, having I say a limited knowledge on on the subject, I, I take everything as gospel. So if they're telling me that X, Y, and Z happened, then I believe that X, Y, and Z happened. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dispute it. Um, that's maybe that's a good assumption to have or not a good assumption to have but um no, overall it was it was intriguing uh i enjoyed it uh, the thing that i found most entertaining uh was my brother and i spoke about was the the chain that they put across the golden horn it's, it's like almost like the ultimate defensive mechanism that uh which which i find interesting that actually leads me on to my next quick question when you were in Istanbul, I uh, imagine you had an opportunity to to see the Golden Horn. Is it 
is it obvious at the time? And it is if you look at Google Maps, but you know we, we've got the benefit of hindsight. When you're standing looking at the Golden Horn and you're looking at you know Istanbul, Constantinople, is it obvious that someone could have placed a city there a lot earlier because of its strategic location? Um, I I suppose it's it's uh, it's funny because there's so much water going in different directions. People do struggle to work out which is which. Uh, I've had that conversation several times where they're like, which one's the Bosphorus and which one's the the Golden Horn? So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> I guess it's uh, it is a very good location, but I suppose there were cities in different places around that area where you could control the 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 trade going back and forth. Um, it just happens to be the uh, the best spot, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's 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 definitely um, it's definitely a great sight to see. You can actually see the chain, by the way. Oh wow! Um, the chain, the bits of the chain are still there, not not in the water, as in in a museum. Awesome! Oh, that sounds great. That's uh, mm. yeah, dude. It's getting me thinking again, Robin. Getting me thinking again. I'm going to wrap up with a couple of quick fights. And apologies, because I I know this is going to put you on the spot. Uh, and being someone that's into the history, I apologise. But we'll start anyway at the beginning. If you had to pick a favourite Byzantine emperor, who would it be and why? Um, well, the the figure I've come back to uh, again and again is, is Anastasius, who was emperor um, just before Justinian, who's the man who built the Hagia Sophia and is very famous and his face is on the front of my podcast. And I think it's just a contrast between the two. Justinian's very famous and he, he did a lot of uh, conquering and a lot of law giving and a lot of controversial things. And it, it just intrigues me that Anastasius comes across as the opposite, that he kind of just respected things as the way they are and tried to make sensible adjustments and not uh, publicize and glorify himself. But I probably need to look into that more because that image of him may be uh, deliberately constructed to contrast with Justinian. But I suppose that fits more my own nature to uh, to not make it all about you and uh, make, make people suffer for your benefit as Justinian did. Um, so that would be my answer. And then on the flip side, if you had to pick a least favourite, who would it be and why? Hmm. Yeah, Byzantium doesn't have that many terrible emperors, um, which has come up. Several people have asked me, how come Caligula and Nero and so on, uh, all these crazy emperors, why doesn't Byzantium have any of them? Which I think is probably to do with, with Christianity and the need to... Uh, be sober at church services um yeah uh, there's there's a there's a guy called basiliscus who's again very early in our story who gets a very bad press he might be uh he might be the worst one who kind of uh destroys a fleet through his negligence then steals the throne and then immediately is overthrown through again his own incompetence i'd probably have to say him <laughs> Uh, funny, yeah, funny you mentioned him. I did, I did have a chuckle going through those episodes, listening to to his story. It was um, interesting to to say the least. 
Uh, and then finally, if you had to pick anyone that's not you know Byzantine related, if you had to pick the greatest historical figure that you could think of, who would it be? Oh wow! Greatest historical figure. No pressure. Um, <laughs> oh, you see that that really would require some uh, some thinking. I'm tempted just to say Jesus um for obvious reasons um and one could easily say muhammad as well um i'm trying to think if there's a better answer than that there probably isn't uh, it's good enough good enough for me so, probably I'll, I'll stick with jc yeah <laughs> good times uh robin that's been it's been fantastic thank you for your time i think there's it's been a lot of really cool content there about travel-related activities, your network as well, talking about the tours, how to monetize podcasts, what it takes to you know, prepare for a history podcast. If people want to find out more about yourself, uh, about yourself sorry, and the podcast, how do they go about doing that? Uh, head on over to thehistoryofbyzantium.com or stick Byzantium into your podcast app and you will find the show. And uh, yeah, I, I suppose if you are into Roman history and this podcast has in any way made you think, hmm, maybe I could listen to a history podcast then do check out the history of Rome um, by Mike Duncan, because you'll get all your Julius Caesar and Hannibal and uh, Constantine and all the stuff you already know, and that'll ease you in and, by the time you come out, you'll be a, a dedicated fan and want to hear the history of Byzantium. Awesome stuff. Any final words of wisdom? Uh, just, uh, <laughs> I suppose if I was giving advice to anyone doing a podcast that was anything like mine, I would say make a show that you would want to listen to. Don't Don't make a show that, you that everyone else is making or that you think you should make make a show specific to you and see if there are a lot more yous out there on the internet because that's a very fulfilling <laughs> uh and and kind of easier way to discover things i think than to make something just like everyone else is making and then find out it's not that successful Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Well, Robin, once again, thanks for your time. It's been really, really informative. And you know, best of luck with adventures moving forward. Thank you so much. Thank you.